um, sometimes even whenever you don't like each other, you don't stop talking. But hey, that got really quiet really fast. All right, well, good, good. Y'all doing good today? Yeah, awesome, awesome. Uh, as far as I know, Alan asked if I was doing good. I think I'm doing all right. <laughs> What'd you say? We'll let you know. Uh, please reserve all judgments. <laughs> Okay, let's, let's pray together. Father, God, we are so thankful that we can gather together with a group of people who actually like each other. Father, I know that I've been a part of groups, even, even church groups, that sometimes don't seem like they really have much interest in gathering together, much interest in being with one another, Lord. So I thank you that we have a fellowship, a church body here that actually loves one another, Lord, and I thank you for that. Lord, as we, as we turn to this time of, of Bible study, as we come around your word, Lord, I pray that you would guide us. I pray that you would direct us. Father, I pray that we would, we would know your word more, that we would have a desire to know your word more, that we would just grow in a love for your word and in the ministry of the word. Father, help us to be faithful ambassadors, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have been, over the last couple weeks, y'all know we've got this tree analogy, and I'm going to keep using it for at least a few more weeks, so you're just going to have to bear with me here. But if you remember, we, want, we have a vision of what we want to be, what we want to become, and what that vision is. We want to be a body of believers who proclaim Christ, empowering all people to become mature followers of Christ by the wisdom of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember this analogy... I told you that what we see is what's above the ground. That is the part of the tree that we can see. That's what we want to grow into. That's what we want to become. But what we've been talking about starting last week and what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks is how we get there, how we actually become that kind of a church. How do we become a church that is a body of believers who proclaims Christ, who empowers all people to become mature followers of Christ? How do we do that? How do we actually make that happen? And if you remember, I told you that the, these five things that we're going to try to do, these five disciplines that we're going to talk about over this week and the coming weeks, these are like the root system that's driving down deeper. Because if we want to be firm, if we want to be established, we need to have a deep root system, something that drives down deeper and deeper and deeper. And how do we do that? What are those roots? What is it that we need to be grounded in, establishing us so that we can grow into the church that we want to be? Okay, and if you remember, I told you these, these roots, they aren't just some disciplines that we have to practice. They're not just a list of things that we do, but they're disciplines to be ingrained in who we are, to the very core of our being. Like, this is, these are things that should mark us as followers of Jesus. Okay, these are very foundational to what we want to become. And last week we talked about prayer. We talked about prayer and what prayer is and this exchange of wishes with God as we lay down our hearts and we ask him what he desires for our lives. And that's what we talked about last week. That was our first root was prayer. Um, and I actually had a funny story I wanted to share with you all about being told I pray too much during church services. But um, I don't know that you can pray too much. That's the funny thing. If there's a criticism you have of me and that criticism is, Jared, you pray too much. Like, I'll take that all day. I'll take that all day long. Like, yeah, I'm Great, we're going to pray too much, um, as if you somehow could. But last week we talked about prayer and how we wanted to be rooted in prayer. We want to be grounded in prayer. And this week, this week we're going to talk about our second discipline. And this discipline is the ministry of the word. Now, 
we're going to talk about this in several different ways over the coming weeks because we have uh, a week that we're going to talk about fellowship and evangelism. We're going to talk about those, and we will certainly talk about the ministry of the Word within those disciplines themselves. Okay? So today, today we're going to kind of get an overview of a ministry of the Word because this is, this is a very multifaceted discipline. Again, just like prayer, there is... We don't have enough time, nor do I have the intelligence, to be able to sit here and give you a perfect layout of everything you need to know about how to minister God's word, administer God's word, and fulfill your responsibility in the ministry of the word. I don't have time for all of that. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one particular passage. If you would like to open your Bible, and I would encourage you to do so, we're going to be in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as we look at this, I started asking myself a question that I think a lot of people in the church have asked themselves. And that is, who is responsible for the ministry of the word? Who is responsible for the ministry of the word? I heard somebody say all of us. Is it all of us? Because a lot of churchgoers, they have an attitude as if it's the responsibility of the pastor, elders, the teachers. That's, that's who is responsible for the ministry of the word. Or is it all people? Who is really responsible for this ministry? Who is it? Well, is it the pastors and the elders? Yes, absolutely. Pastors and elders, they are responsible for the ministry of the word. Um, Acts chapter 6, uh, verse 4, as the apostles, they here it's actually talking about how they appoint deacons to go out and serve some of these people. The apostles, they appoint deacons to serve the church, and then they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. This is one of the few places in the entire Bible that the phrase ministry of the word is actually used. So, of course, we want to look at this. And the apostles, who were not elders in the church, they were sort of forerunners to elders in the church, they say, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. Clearly, pastors, elders, they are responsible for the ministry of the word. And yes, they absolutely have a tremendous responsibility in the ministry of the word. Okay? They have an incredible responsibility. James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive stricter judgment. You know how intimidating a verse like that is for a pastor? At least a pastor who really cares about what he's doing. It says that we will receive stricter judgment. Stricter judgment. Because we're teaching. Not many should become teachers. There is a great responsibility for pastors, for elders, for teachers in the local church. Of course, there is a tremendous responsibility to get it right. And God's word confirms that by saying there is stricter judgment. Further, for pastors and elders, as they minister the word, it says that there is greater honor. 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So, of course, there's honor for an elder. Of course, there is. Like, I love what I'm doing, and I'm very thankful that God says that it's to be honored. Those people who preach and teach, there's great honor, but there's also a great responsibility that comes with that great honor. And I don't think we want to overlook that. So, clearly, pastors and elders are responsible for the ministry of the word. Yes, a resounding yes, those folks in the church are responsible for ministry of the word. But I would like to argue today that all Christians, all followers of Jesus, have a responsibility, a role to play in the ministry of the word. I actually had the privilege of going and sitting in with a group of pastors as one of these pastors was a a very intelligent man. He had received a Ph.D. in New Testament theology. Um, He wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on the Great Commission. 
very intelligent man who wrote this, this dissertation. And he was talking about just the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20. Okay? And in case you're not familiar with it, here's what the Great Commission says. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And as he was talking about this Great Commission, as he was kind of giving a little lecture on the Great Commission, he said, Now who is that commission given to? Who is he talking to there? And if you look and you see the context, he's, he's speaking specifically to his disciples. Speaking specifically to the apostles, the eleven at that point. That's who he's talking to. Okay, so how does that really affect us? Does that mean it's just these, these forerunners? Well, what he discovered as he studied the entire book of Matthew, and specifically the Great Commission, is that these disciples, these, these eleven here in the book of Matthew, are representative of the entire church. That was the conclusion he came to. In other words, this command, this great commission, is given to all of the church. The disciples specifically as representatives of the church. So the entire body is told, go and make disciples. And did you hear the last part of that says? It says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. How do we know what Jesus has commanded? Well, here's, here's a spoiler. Um, there is a book that's written that has Jesus' commands written in it. Uh, we call it the Bible. The ministry of the Word is a responsibility of the whole church. Or there's a passage that we looked at just a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making His appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We, as the church, are ambassadors of Christ. We are authorized representatives of Jesus. And we are supposed to carry the message of reconciliation to those around us. How do we know this message of reconciliation? It's in the Word. This is the message of reconciliation. Which means that every Christian has a role to play in the ministry of the word. Every follower of Jesus has a role to play in the ministry of the word. Pastors, elders, leaders, they have an incredibly important role to fill. Yes, but all Christians need to know God's word. They need to understand God's word. They need to grow in God's word. And they need to participate in the ministry of the word. All followers of Jesus have a responsibility. In other words... As you sit here today and you think, okay, well, we're talking about ministry of the word. Well, this doesn't directly apply to me because I'm not a pastor, elder, or teacher, okay? I don't have any of those roles to fill. Well, that means that you're not listening very well because I just told you this applies to all believers. All believers have a role to play. So what my goal today, my goal today is to show you why the ministry of the word is so important and let that drive you to participating in the ministry of the word. I just want to show you why this is so significant here from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I'm going to ask that you would all stand with me as we, uh, as we read God's word. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 10 this morning. Verse 10, and we're going to read through 17. So Paul writes, but you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. 
You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. So from this text... From these verses, and really we're going we're gonna to focus mainly on verses 14 to 17, but I wanted to read the whole thing for context there. But from this verse, I want to show you just why the ministry of the word is so important, why it is so crucial to who we are as a church, and why this is one of our foundation, one of our foundations, one of our founding principles, one of the things that we need to have ingrained in who we are. Okay, so four reasons ministry of the word is so significant. Um, first, ministry of the word is important because it empowers perseverance. Ministry of the Word empowers perseverance. Okay? I want you to hear verses 12 through 13 again, just so that we have context for verse 14. Verses 12 and 13, they say, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, that's, that's difficult. These are things that will happen. Paul doesn't leave much room for error. He basically says, you know what? If you want to know what I can promise you, here it is. I can promise you that if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Now, I know that where we live in the United States and in this part of the country, we especially, like out here in rural Missouri, we experience very little persecution because of our faith. I think we, really, if we look on a cosmic scale, on a global scale, we have very little opposition to being Christians. Okay? But every Christian, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, God's word promises you will be persecuted in some way, shape, or form. Further, it says that evil people and imposters, they will come in and they're going to get worse and worse. As time goes on, these imposters are going to get worse and worse. And it says that they are going to deceive and that, you will, that some will be deceived. There is deception. Some may be intentional deception. Some may not be intentional deception. Some people may think they're doing the right thing and still be deceiving others. And see, this is why knowing the Bible is so incredibly important for the church. This is why it's so important for the church. We need to know what God's word says so that we can spot imposters. So that we can spot the deception. Because that's what he says. He says, as you get to verse 14, he says, but... See, this is the way the world's going to live, but you need to be different. You need to be set apart. He says, but as for you, as for you, you need to be different. Here's how you live. In other words, he's saying, you know what? There's going to be deceivers. There's going to be people who either, either hear a lie or intentionally tell a lie or people who hear this lie and don't even realize it and then they perpetuate this lie, this deception. There's going to be those people. Don't let that be you. Are you so grounded in God's word that you can spot the deception? Can you spot the imposter? Can you see that thing that kind of looks like the real deal, but it's not? There's something funny about it. It's not quite the right thing. It's a counterfeit. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. I think this is a good opportunity to pause for just a moment and figure out exactly who it is that Paul's writing to here as he writes this letter. And hopefully, you aren't too shocked to find that the guy's name is Timothy. I mean, at the top of your page, it probably says Timothy, okay? 
Yeah, that's who Paul's writing to. He's writing to this guy named Timothy. And the first time we meet Timothy is in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. And here's what it says about him. It says, Paul went to Derbe and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So we learned that Timothy was a follower of Jesus who became a disciple of Paul. He was a follower of Jesus. He loved Jesus. It says that he was a disciple right there in the very beginning. And he became a disciple of Paul, a follower of Paul. So he traveled with Paul, he taught with Paul, he delivered the church, church council's decisions right there alongside Paul. Now we know who Paul is, most of us know who Paul is. Paul was an apostle of Jesus, he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. So we recognize his name. But Timothy is a guy who was there alongside Paul, executing a lot of the same things that Paul was doing. Doing the same stuff. He was delivering these decisions, he was teaching with Paul. This was a very influential man in the early church. He carried these messages from the church council in Jerusalem. And he's told, hold to what you firmly believe, what you learned and what you firmly believe. Continue in that. So what did he learn and firmly believe? Well, remember, he was a disciple before Paul came along, so clearly he knew Jesus beforehand. So he needed to know, he needed to remember, he needed to hold to what he knew beforehand. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Also, he needed to learn, remember, or continue in what he had learned from Paul. Because remember, he was a disciple of Paul. He followed Paul. And he also needed to hold to what he had learned from the church council in Jerusalem and hold to their decisions. He needs to hold to what he knows from the scripture. Because he's been familiar with it his whole life, as we're going to see here in just a moment. But Paul here is telling him, hold fast to this because there will be persecution. There will be struggles. There are going to be those who want to deceive. So cling to what you know. Cling to what you know from God's word. The Bible empowers us to persevere amidst trials in the face of deception and just so you know, this isn't the first time that this has happened, obviously. This happens over and over and over again in the Bible. Like, there's deception, there is persecution, there are these struggles, and they need to know the Scripture. People need to know the Scriptures in order to hold fast. This is exactly what happened as Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, it's also in Matthew 4, and Satan, the deceiver, who's known as the deceiver, he comes and he tempts Jesus. And each time Jesus is tempted by Satan, what does Jesus say? It is written. It is written. He points him back to Scripture. And here's the thing, though. Satan himself will try to twist and manipulate Scripture. Do you all know that? Satan will twist and try to manipulate Scripture. He will try to deceive. And we're actually going to see that here in just a few verses. Uh, we won't get to it today, but in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul gets to this very fact. It says in, in chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. People will twist God's word. They will deceive because it's what they want to hear. And just so you guys know, just so you know, I really, I don't believe that these are just TV evangelists. 
Most people, whenever they hear people twist the scripture, they instantly think of some people I'm not going to call out by name. But there are some TV evangelists um, that, that like to do this. But just so you know, it's not only the TV evangelists. There are even some who will do this in rural churches a lot like this one. Now, I'm not hinting at myself. I, I promise I have never intentionally twisted God's word. Um, that is not my goal, not my intent. But I know that there are preachers at churches very similar to this one who will twist God's word so that people hear what they want to hear instead of hear the truth of God's word. We need to know it so that we can spot the counterfeit. It's only when we know the scriptures that we can confidently say to these deceivers, it is written. We have to know the word. Ministry of the word is important because it empowers perseverance. Second, ministry of the word is important because it is necessary for salvation. It is necessary for salvation. There are a few things that I will say are necessary for salvation, but ministry of the word is one of them. Um, Verse 14, second half of it, into 15, it says, You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, um, I really wanted to keep rolling, but there's a point that I really wanted to make a main point, but uh, I didn't. So I'm going to take a not-so-quick side note here, so stay with me for just a minute. Okay, we're going to branch off just a little bit, we're going to chase a rabbit for a minute. I want you to look to see how significant it is to teach your kids the word. Okay, it says right here that from infancy, Timothy knew the sacred scriptures. From infancy. Okay, if you're a King James reader, it says childhood. But I'm going to be honest with you, this word isn't, isn't childhood. This is infancy. It means a baby, like a little baby. As a matter of fact, we only get close to it in, in our English translations because this word here that, we, that most, of, most modern translations have as infancy, um, it, it really could be used to describe a baby that is still in the womb. In other words, what what Paul is writing to Timothy here is he says, look, you heard the sacred scriptures, you heard the word of God before you were ever born. Like you knew it before you were born. You were still in the womb and you were hearing this word. How did he hear this word? How did he hear this? He was an infant still in the womb. How did he hear this word? Unfortunately, it didn't come from his father. What we know is it came from his mother and from his grandmother. Not only was he a baby whenever he first learned the scripture, still in the womb, but we find in the first part of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, he says, I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. Timothy heard this word from his mother and from his grandmother. How did he know the sacred scriptures? It's because it was taught to him by some godly women. Thank God for godly women in our lives. I have become increasingly convinced that there is nothing more important, nothing more important than raising up godly offspring. I, I can't seem to get over this, and I'm probably going to get myself in trouble, but I want to share a personal story for just a minute. Um, many of you guys know we have three little kids, um, three young children, and there are days where we become increasingly, uh, no, I need to back up just a little bit. I need to say this very carefully. There are days where it's hard. It's hard. Y'all, that, all you who have had kids, you remember little kids. They can be difficult. 
Now, my kids are awesome. I do not want to bash my kids. My kids are awesome. I have the best kids in the world. They're well-behaved for the most part. Um, they can be a little ornery. Steph's smiling because she's like, yeah, sure. Um, but no, we have good kids. We really do have good kids. Um, and I, I love my kids dearly. I do. But, you know, there are days where we look around and we're thinking, man, should we be, should we be doing this? Or should we be doing that? Not so that we can teach our kids more about Jesus, but we're thinking this so that we can offer them a better life. You know, could we, could we somehow make a better living so that we could provide cooler stuff so that they could go have more fun doing something else? Should we do those things? And I'm not saying those things are wrong. Those aren't necessarily, those aren't inherently wrong. But oftentimes we start saying, you know what, could we do, could we do something else? And what we're saying really is, couldn't we just sacrifice a little bit here so that we can give them something that the world wants them to have? Now, understand, that's a temptation I think every parent struggles with. I really do. I think every parent struggles with that. But I really, I really, I've become increasingly convinced that there is nothing more important, no job that's more important, no relationships that are more important, aside from you and your wife. Like, the husband and wife relationship is one, kids are one B. Like, Pour into your children. Pour into your children. I've just been getting more and more confirmation that there's little you could do that's going to have greater impact than teaching your children the way they should go, than teaching them the scriptures. So there's my not-so-quick detour, and I'll get back to the main point here, which is the word is important because it's necessary for salvation. So if you want to see people saved, if you want to see people saved, know the Bible. You know what, if you're sitting in this room right now and you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know what, I don't even know if I'm saved. Know the Bible. Like, know the word. Okay? Paul here says that the sacred scriptures are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So when we talk to somebody about Jesus, we better be incorporating scripture. If you want to see somebody saved, you better be telling them about Scripture. You better be telling them what the Bible says. Whether you cite it as if it's from the Bible or you don't cite it, I don't particularly care as long as you're speaking the word of truth. Like, preach this word. The whole book, this entire book, points to Jesus. All of it does. From Genesis to Revelation, every word of it points us to Jesus. In one way or another, it is to tell us about Jesus. So if you want to preach the gospel to somebody, the good news about Jesus, tell them what the book says. Teach them what it says. And maybe the reason, maybe the reason few people are saved or we think, you know what, I've never led somebody to salvation. I've never been, I've never experienced that. Maybe, just maybe, I'm not saying always, but maybe the problem is, is that we're trying to persuade them with human reason and we're not opening the Bible and saying, here's what God says. Preach the Bible. Tell them what the Bible says. Here's what Romans 6, Romans 1, 16 says about, about the Bible, about the gospel. It says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That salvation, still, it still comes through faith in Jesus. It still comes through faith in Jesus. But how can they come to that faith unless they hear the good news? And how can they hear unless somebody tells them? So learn the word so that you can share the word so that people can be saved. Y'all want people to be saved? I do. Know the word so you can share the word so that people can be saved. Ministry of the word is important because it empowers perseverance and it's necessary for salvation. Third, ministry of the word is important because it has divine origins. Divine origins. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible to quote is 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard me quote this because it comes up often, right? 
And typically, I quote it from the NIV, which says all Scripture is God-breathed. The CSB, which I read from, it it says all Scripture is inspired by God. Many of your translations probably say inspired by God. Some may say God-breathed. Okay? So which is better? Is it God-breathed or is it inspired by God? (laughs) The answer is yes. Absolutely yes. Okay, um, I threw up a Greek word last week. I mentioned a Greek word last week, and people really seem to enjoy the Greek, so I wanted to do it again. If we could put this word up here. Here's this fun word to say, and it doesn't have that funny flimmy sound, so I won't do that in the microphone again. Um, this one is theopneustos. Theopneustos. Okay, fun word to say. Theopneustos. The interesting thing about this word is it's not used anywhere else in the Bible. One occurrence, right here, in 2 Timothy 3.16. And this word, this word is the one that's translated either inspired by God or God-breathed. That's this word, theopneustos. It means literally to be inspired by God. But if we actually break this down, every single concordance will tell us it means inspired by God. But if we break it down and see how it's composed, again, just like last week, this is a compound word. It's made up of two smaller Greek words. Okay, the first part is this theos, which means God. And whenever you come across the word God in the New Testament, typically it's this word, theos, or some version of it. So this is the word that we see God. It's generally, generally referring to the one true God. And then it's comprised of this other word that means, or that's pronounced nuo. It means to breathe out or to blow out. And it comes from the same word as spirit, which is the, the Greek word noumena or pneuma. This word means God breathed out. God blew out. That's what this word is meaning. I actually read one commentator that said they believe that Paul coined this word as he was writing 2 Timothy. This is the only instance it's used. But it literally means that God breathed out. In other words, what Scripture is, is God's breath on a page. God's breath on a page. I almost envision it like this, like God picked up a book and he just goes, (gasps) and words appeared. But that's a really cheesy illustration. But instead, that's that's not what happened. That's not how God wrote it. Instead, what happened is men were inspired by God. Men were inspired by God, God's breath, God's spirit coming and dwelling in them and then guiding them by his spirit as they pen the words of the Bible. And just so you know, this may be the only time that this word is used, but it's not the only time this idea is expressed. Okay, this isn't the only time this idea is expressed. Um, Peter actually wrote about this same thing. So it's not like Paul was off of his rocker as he wrote this. No, Peter said the, something very similar in, chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says the same thing. This is inspiration from God, by God. God inspired this word. It is God-breathed. Now, here's the thing. I think a lot of times we do a good job of what we talked about last week with the prayer. Like, I think a lot of times we do a really good job of going to God and we tell him what our wishes are. We tell him what our desires are. We tell him what we want. We tell him all those things, which is well and good. Fine. Okay. But then oftentimes we say, hmm. If only, if only I knew what God wanted. Huh. If only I knew what God's wishes were. 
If only as I breathed out my wishes, my wants, my desires, what, what I'm praying for towards God, if only there was a way that God had breathed that back to me. Huh. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that just be amazing? If only it had been breathed out and it were accessible for me. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I hope this isn't a big surprise to y'all. We have God's breath on a page. Like, we have it right here. You want to know what God's will is? Read what he said. Just study what he said. Know what he said. I mean, one of the things I hear more often than not is, how do I know God's will for my life? And now that's a, that's a complicated question. I understand that there are nuances to every, everybody asking that question. How do I know God's will for my life? Well, my first question would be, have you read the book? Do you know the book? Like, okay, it's not going to say, take this job, don't take this job. Instead, what it's going to do is it's going to give you wisdom so that you can discern between this job and this job. I honestly believe that the reason we have so many questions about God's will for our lives is we haven't read his desires, his wants, his heart on a page. Ministry of the word is important because it empowers perseverance. It's necessary for salvation. It has divine origins. It is God-breathed here. And finally, ministry of the word is important because it is useful for your personal growth. It's useful for your personal growth. Let's pick up in verse 16 again. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Not only is God's word breathed out, but it says that it's profitable. If you're an NIV reader, it says useful. God's word is useful. Like it actually does something. It's not like it's just there so that we can just continue on as we are. No, it's useful. It shows you how to live. And it tells us how, how it's profitable or how it's useful. It says teaching. Did you know that the Bible is, is meant to show you how to live? It's meant to teach you the, the deep things of life. You want to know? Open God's word. It teaches us. Second thing it says it's profitable for is rebuking. Anybody know what a rebuke is? They're not fun to receive. I know that. Rebuking, it means to express sharp disapproval or criticism. In other words, the Bible is at times going to show you things in your life that are not the way that they should be. And yeah, that hurts. Oh yeah, because we like to do things the way we want to. Like, I want things my way, but sometimes the Bible conflicts with that. Which is right, the Bible or me? The answer is always the Bible. The Bible. It stands in contrast with teaching. This rebuke stands in contrast with teaching, which is the positive side. And it also shows when we're living in a way that we shouldn't live. It shows us both sides of this coin. It shows us the positive side. Here's how you do live. And whenever we get out of that line, it shows us the way that we shouldn't live. So we have the positive teaching and the negative teaching with the rebuke. And typically, typically in my own life, in my own faith, whenever I'm conflicted, whenever I'm, whenever I'm con, um Whenever I am hit with sin and I am really convicted of my sin, it's because I have either been reading God's word or I've been listening to God's word preached. That's when I get convicted. I'm rebuked for my lifestyle. So, it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking. Next thing he says is correcting. This word correcting means to set up right again. In other words, it picks it back up and puts it the way it should be. So not only does, does God's word tell you that you're, you're living the wrong way, but then it shows you how to correct it. In other words, God's word not only calls you out on your sin, but it also calls you out of your sin. Not just out on your sin, like, oh, hey, you're a filthy, rotten sinner. But then it says, here's how you correct that. 
Here's the way that you should live. Here's how you fix what is wrong. So it's profitable for teaching, correcting, uh, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. In other words, it's useful for demonstrating the discipline of holiness. So we read, we study, we listen to God's word because it's profitable, because it's useful. It says right here. And this leads to the church being equipped. Verse 17 says, so that, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Another word that is only used at this place in the New Testament is this word that's translated as complete, so that the man of God may be complete. It has to do with being capable of performing a given task. If you want to know how to do what you're supposed to do, how to do what God's called you to do, read God's word because it will show you how to be complete, complete, equipped for this good work. It's reinforced by this idea of equipping, equipping for good work. Now, here's something that is interesting. Did you, did you know that God has a good work for you? God has work for you to do. There's something that God has for you. His word is a tool that's used to equip us. God has something for you to do as a part of his body. He doesn't just teach us so that we gain greater head knowledge and we sit on the sideline all while nothing really changes. Instead, he teaches, he rebukes, he corrects, he trains through the word so that we are prepared for the work that he has set before us. We have a reason for doing that. Too often, we turn to something other than this book because we think that it's incomplete or insufficient, that it's not really going to teach us everything we need to know so that we are really equipped for the work that God has for us. But that's not what this says, is it? It says if you want to be complete and equipped for every good work, you need to know the Bible. That's what you need to know. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't other good resources out there. Of course there are good resources out there. I use some of those resources even as I prepared to read this sermon, as I prepared to preach this sermon. But the reality is, if we want to be perfectly equipped, completely equipped, totally ready for the service that God has for us, we need to know the word of God. We need to be finished completely. So if you want to know, if you want to know how your faith can be deep, and if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to serve God better in what he's called you to, know the word. Know the word. Ministry of the word is important because it empowers perseverance. It's necessary for salvation. It has divine origins. It's useful for personal growth. So what? Well, like I told you, here at Christian Fellowship Church, we want to be a body of believers who proclaim Christ, empowering all people to become mature followers of Christ by the, power of the, or by the wisdom of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. In order for this to happen, the Bible has to be. It absolutely must be ingrained in everything we do. It has to be ingrained in who we are. If we want to be people who know Jesus, we need to know Him in His Word. If we want other people to come to know Jesus... The answer is to proclaim the scriptures because they are able, as we just read, they are able to give you wisdom for salvation through Christ. Like, how do we lead people to Jesus? Well, you want to give them the wisdom that leads to salvation in Christ? Tell them what the Bible says. It contains the wisdom for salvation. If you want to grow in your faith to become mature followers of Christ, you must learn the word of God because it's the very breath of God on the page. It is useful to build you into the person God wants you to be and so that you can be used by him effectively in the ministry that he has called you to. Know the word of God. I want to urge you, know the written word of God so that you can know the incarnate word of God. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to end this with a quote that I read this week from, from Charles Spurgeon, um, fantastic preacher. Now, I, I want to tell you that he was specifically talking about Sunday school teachers. 
um, specifically talking about Sunday school teachers, but this has application for all Christians and how they need to know the word of God. So Spurgeon said this. He said, Timothy became also a great champion of the faith. He came forward, and in the midst of all those who were preaching false doctrine, he stood firm to the end, steadfast, unmovable, courageous, because as a child he had known the scriptures. O teachers, see what you may do. In your schools sit our future evangelists. In that infant class sits an apostle to some distant land. There may come under your training hand, my sister, a future father in Israel. There shall come under your teaching, my brother, those who... those who are to bear the banners of the Lord in the thick of the fray. The ages look to you each time your class assembles. Oh, that God may help you do your part well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I am thankful for this ministry of the word. Um, Lord, the reason I thank you so much for this word, the reason I thank you so often for this word and, uh, is because I know the power this word has. Father, I'm thankful that you put me in a place and in a time and into a family where I had grandparents who read the word over me, who prayed the word over me. Father, I'm thankful for a mother and a father who taught me what the scriptures say from a young age. God, I'm so thankful that this Bible has been ingrained in my life from the very beginning. Father, but I I know that there are some who haven't had that experience. Father, I know that there are some who are relatively new to this word. God, and I want to pray right now that you would drive them to an understanding that this word contains the word of life. Father, I pray that you would drive them to see that this is your breath on a page. I pray that if they wanted to know your will, your wants for them, God, I pray that they would be driven back to this word. Father, I pray that as a church, as Christian Fellowship Church, as this body of believers, I pray that we would strive to make your word a fundamental part of who we are. God, that we wouldn't go around asking what the world thinks or what pragmatism says, but instead we would ask, what does God's word say? What does his wisdom teach? Father, let us be that kind of a church. Lord, let us be that kind of individuals. Lord, as I, as I think about the people sitting here in this room God, I pray, I pray that you would give us a firm conviction that your word is what we need. Not some smarter, clever ending, not something that, that, that is within our grasp, but instead, God, what we need to know fully and completely is your word. God, drive us to it. Give us knowledge as we study it. Lord, let us know you through your word. Lord, I pray that if there is a person who, in this place this morning that doesn't know you, God, as inevitably there is, Lord, I pray that you would use this word to convict them of their sin. Lord, I pray that they would see that they are guilty of sin and stand before you judged as they sit here today. Lord, I pray that they would realize that there is hope, but that hope is only found through faith in Jesus. Lord, I believe that your word is capable of that, and I pray that you would make it effective. Father, I'm thankful that you have saved people, that you've given them wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, and I pray that you would continue to do that through our church and let us be effective ministers of this word. And I pray it in Jesus' name.